for us, it's a week until Monday, Thursday. But in our reading this morning, we have only a, a sleep away from that day. A sleep away from the day that contains the Last Supper and the night of the arrest of Jesus. And our passage follows on closely from where we were on Sunday morning, where Jesus had again, like many of the other uh, readings that we've had during Lent that were based around Holy Week, Jesus had challenged the order of the world as it was perceived by those in authority. He challenged the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders and the Sadducees. He put forward that there were people that when they received the gospel would be welcomed into the kingdom and those that expected to be welcomed into the kingdom would be turned away into darkness and would not have the hope of eternal life that the believer has. A meeting of the chief priests under Caiaphas then took place and they will need someone to betray Jesus. They were looking for their opportunity and that's how the passage continues. Judas seeing 30 pieces of silver counted out. And so our passage comes sort of between one meeting of the chief priests and another meeting of the chief priests. Unlike in Jerusalem, where the number of enemies seem to be growing, Jesus is out for a night's rest in Bethany, where he has a large number of friends. The village is on the Mount of Olives. There's a little bit of debate as to its exact sighting, how far up the mount it actually was. But it's about a mile and a quarter, mile and a half away from Jerusalem itself. And it would seem, by the way the text is written um, throughout the Holy Week passages, that Jesus has been retiring there each night He's been using it as a base with his friends and journeying into the main city, the holy city, and visiting the temple each day. Historically, it was thought that the name of Bethany uh, had something to do with the production of dates and that this fruit was a place of dates or a house of dates on the Mount of Olives. Um, but in, towards the end of the 19th century, that was challenged quite a bit by a, a professor of the British Museum. Uh, he said that rather than the Hebrew roots that many thought uh, the place name had associated it with, and hence the word dates, um, it was actually an Aramaic word uh, related to almshouse or house of the poor. And that might suggest something about why Simon the leper is living in this village. 
it maybe has this reputation of being quite a different place from the royal city. It is a place where poor and those in need historically lived. Simon the leper, or maybe Simon no longer the leper, um, his old name seems to have stuck, is the host of a meal. But if he had that disease or a similar skin disease, he would have been ostracized by society. He would have been forced to leave the village. He would not have been able to host the dinner. And so at some point he has been healed. And we don't know that much about Simon other than he has a home and he invites people round and they sit at table. So he's the host. So it suggests that he's got a particular part to play. And normally, it would have been the role of the host to anoint the notable guest with oil, as well as providing the meal. Now, we don't have a record of Simon doing that. We can't say that he did or that he didn't. Perhaps as a poor man, he did not have oil for such a purpose. But then again, as he has a home and has welcomed people to dinner, maybe he's not so poor anymore. And it is the woman who comes in and anoints and performs that role that would normally be expected to take place within the home. The disciples are upset. The word is indignant. You know, they're not just a bit miffed. You know, they're stamping their foot and expressing their unhappiness in quite strong terms. They are indignant over the value of the perfume. You know? Couldn't this have been sold? Well, there's a story much like this in all four Gospels. Though there are slight variations. The fourth Gospel, John, has this episode of the anointing done by a woman on Palm Sunday. Or just before Palm Sunday, just before the triumphant entry. Luke chapter 7 puts it much earlier in the story of Jesus' life, has the story of anointing in a Galilean home of a Pharisee who also happened to be called Simon. Perhaps um, the same person, perhaps not. And so there's at least... Uh, and I should say Matthew gets this version probably from Mark's gospel. Mark and Matthew share the same sort of story, the same timing, the same events. So there's three different tellings of anointing as a feast and the disciples, or not always all the disciples getting upset. And perhaps one of those earlier two episodes inspires the woman 
in Matthew and Mark, or maybe they are distinct episodes, or maybe just the story is retold in different ways at different times to communicate a different story to us. It's difficult for us to determine how much perfume. How big was the alabaster jar? Well, it was most likely a small bottle that originated from northern Egypt. That was the area that tended to produce bottles of alabaster from northern Egypt near Suez. And much of the craft of that area was directed towards uh, making material for sacramental use, particularly related to burials. So the carving that they did tended to be used in relation with death, let alone the fact that there's got this perfume inside which Mark, and also John, if we use his account, would tell us is nard. And so there's this perfume that is often, but not only used for anointment of the dead, being poured out from a bottle that might have been used for anointment of the dead. So there's a reinforcement of the message coming here, even though it's still almost 48 hours until the Lord's death on the cross. And it's this anointment preparal for burial that Jesus gives us the explanation to the disciples. In fact, that's his words. She did it to prepare me for burial. She did it because I'm going to die. But, of course, the 12 are still struggling with this concept that the Christ has to die. Matthew records Jesus speaking of this earlier in that day. At verse 2 of this chapter, just before our actual reading, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Well, the Lord could hardly put it any more bluntly than that, could he? You know, in two days' time, the Son of Man's got to be crucified. There you go. Boom. But the disciples are still not picking up on it. The path of Jesus is declared. But they expect him to take a different route to victory. Their eyes and ears are still not open. They remain, as uh, Mike was saying the other time when we met here, still blind men. They're still not seeing it. So, the perfume is poured out and the disciples are indignant. And it is the disciples. It's not, as other gospels might say, only Judas, or as John might, uh, as 
Judas is what John might say, uh, or as Mark puts, some of the disciples. The words here suggest that all of them are still lacking understanding. But there is a common understanding among those followers of Jesus, an understanding that they need to help the poor. This perfume could have been sold at a high price, the money given to the poor. And of course, we might recall Jesus saying to wealthy people who wanted to be followers, particularly to a rich young man, that he should sell his possessions and give it to the poor. But we don't actually see Jesus and the disciples doing this. They may give up their livelihoods, they travel with him, they may not have had many possessions, they didn't take much with them when they were sent out as the twelve, or later as part of the seventy-two, but there's still at least one fishing boat at their disposal. There's still some things in their family that they are using. We sometimes have to weigh up what might best serve God's purpose. Is it giving our money directly? Is it selling our possessions and giving it to the poor? Or is it using our wealth and what we have to actually serve God in a different way? And that's a difficult one. And it's some way that we sometimes get wrong and we sometimes get right. Here, the disciples get it wrong. Use its worth, they think. But Jesus says, let it be used in worship. Let it be used for me. We are to give him what he is worth first. And so there's this struggle that appears quite often between worship and the active life of the church in this building or a similar building and the service, what we do in mission, in the wider sense of that word mission. How do we balance those things out. And included within that is how we, in this place, worship and how do we do all those business things that keep us ticking over, that allows us to worship in this place, but sometimes gets us carried away. Which makes me think of another episode in Bethany and the preparation for another meal one that took place at the home of Martha and Mary. And I'm sure you're familiar with that story. Mary sits at Jesus' feet while Martha beetles about doing the work and gets annoyed by her sister's laziness. Only her sister isn't lazy. She's doing a wonderful thing sitting at our Lord's feet. 
Just as Jesus tells the disciples there will always be poor, we have to realize that there's always church work to do. But sometimes we need to stop and sit in his presence and regain the balance of who we are as his followers. Is it beetling or is it finding peace? And we could quite possibly come to the same question if we were to consider another Bethany episode. The raising of Lazarus from the tomb. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. The same sisters cry. But if he had been there and healed the sick brother, the people wouldn't have seen the power over death as Lazarus is resuscitated. Our understanding of what God wants us to do or of what God would have us do in a situation is not always correct. Who in the first century would have thought that through God's love his only son would be born in Bethlehem? Who would have thought that the perfect, blameless son of God would go through a ritual that was meant for those that were being converted to Judaism? Who would have thought that the power of Scripture and the encouragement and the wisdom and the changing of lives and the acceptance of others that we have seen in the Journeying with Jesus series, who would have thought those things would have taken place such that individuals were changed at different times rather than something impacting all of the people of Israel in one go? These things were laid out in the scriptures. The fact that Jesus would die, the fact that he would have been living, the fact that he would have come and lived our common life on earth. And Jesus explains it on the Emmaus Road, the path of what must happen, how the Christ had to suffer these things before entering his glory. I wonder what we get wrong What do we have plainly spoken to us in our Bibles, revealing the way things are supposed to be, but we still misunderstand? We have to read and seek the Spirit's guidance. We have to spend time in prayer considering what the path God has in mind for us. Continue on your journey and prayerfully ask each day that your relationship with him may grow stronger.